Chapter Twenty Seven of the Arabian Nights Entertainments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Arabian Nights Entertainments by Andrew Lang. Chapter Twenty Seven: The Adventures of Prince Camelralzaman and the Princess Badura, Part Two. Whilst all this was happening in the capital of Shahzaman, the two genii had carefully borne the princess of China back to her own palace, and replaced her in bed. On waking next morning, she first turned from one side to another, and then, finding herself alone, called loudly for her women. "'Tell me,' she cried, "'where is the young man I love so dearly, and who slept near me last night?' "'Princess,' exclaimed the nurse, we cannot tell what you allude to without more explanation. Why, continued the princess, the most charming and beautiful young man lay sleeping beside me last night. I did my utmost to wake him, but in vain. Her royal highness wishes to make game of us, said the nurse. Is it your pleasure to rise? I am quite in earnest, persisted the princess, and I want to know where he is. But, princess, expostulated the nurse, we left you quite alone last night, and we have seen no one enter your room since then. At this the princess lost all patience, and taking the nurse by her hair, she boxed her ears soundly, crying out, You shall tell me, you old witch, or I'll kill you. The nurse had no little trouble in escaping, and hurried off to the queen, to whom she related the whole story with tears in her eyes. You see, madame, she concluded, that the princess must be out of her mind. If only you will come and see her, you will be able to judge for yourself. The queen hurried to her daughter's apartments, and after tenderly embracing her, asked her why she had treated her nurse so badly. Madame, said the princess, I perceive that your majesty wishes to make game of me, but I can assure you that I will never marry anyone except the charming young man whom I saw last night. You must know where he is, so pray send for him. The queen was much surprised by these words, but when she declared that she knew nothing whatever of the matter, the princess lost all respect, and answered that if she were not allowed to marry as she wished, she would kill herself, and it was in vain that the queen tried to pacify her and bring her to reason. The king himself came to hear the rights of the matter, but the princess only persisted in her story, and as a proof showed the ring on her finger. The king hardly knew what to make of it all, but ended by thinking that his daughter was more crazy than ever, and without further argument he had her placed in still closer confinement, with only her nurse to wait on her, and a powerful guard to keep the door. Then he assembled his council, and having told them the sad state of things, added, if any of you can succeed in curing the princess, I will give her to him in marriage, and he shall be my heir. An elderly emir present, fired with the desire to possess a young and lovely wife, and to rule over a great kingdom, offered to try the magic arts with which he was acquainted. You are welcome to try, said the king, but I make one condition, which is, that should you fail you will lose your life. The emir accepted the condition, and the king led him to the princess, who, veiling her face, remarked, 
I am surprised, sire, that you should bring an unknown man into my presence. You need not be shocked, said the king. This is one of my emirs who asks your hand in marriage. Sire, replied the princess, this is not the one you gave me before, and whose ring I wear. Permit me to say that I can accept no other. The emir, who had expected to hear the princess talk nonsense, finding how calm and reasonable she was, assured the king that he would not venture to undertake a cure, but placed his head at his majesty's disposal, on which the justly irritated monarch promptly had it cut off. This was the first of many suitors for the princess, whose inability to cure her cost them their lives. Now it happened that after things had been going on in this way for some time, the nurse's son, Marzavan, returned from his travels. He had been in many countries and learned many things, including astrology. Needless to say that one of the first things his mother told him was the sad condition of the princess, his foster-sister. Marzavan asked if she could not manage to let him see the princess without the king's knowledge. After some consideration, his mother consented, and even persuaded the eunuch on guard to make no objection to Marzavan's entering the royal apartment. The princess was delighted to see her foster-brother again, and after some conversation, she confided to him all her history and the cause of her imprisonment. Marzavan listened with downcast eyes and the utmost attention. When she had finished speaking, he said, if what you tell me, princess, is indeed the case, I do not despair of finding comfort for you. Take patience yet a little longer. I will set out at once to explore other countries, and when you hear of my return, be sure that he for whom you sigh is not far off. So saying, he took his leave and started next morning on his travels. Marzavan journeyed from city to city, and from one island and province to another, and wherever he went, he heard people talk of the strange story of the Princess Badura, as the Princess of China was named. After four months, he reached a large populous seaport town named Torf, and here he heard no more of the Princess Badura, but a great deal of Prince Kamaralzaman, who was reported ill, and whose story sounded very similar to that of the Princess Badura. Marzavan was rejoiced, and set out at once for Prince Kamaralzaman's residence. The ship on which he embarked had a prosperous voyage till she got within sight of the capital of King Shalzaman, but when just about to enter the harbor, she suddenly struck on a rock, and foundered within sight of the palace where the prince was living with his father and the grand vizier. Marzavan, who swam well, threw himself into the sea and managed to land close to the palace, where he was kindly received, and after having a change of clothing given him, was brought before the grand vizier. The vizier was at once attracted by the young man's superior air and intelligent conversation, and perceiving that he had gained much experience in the course of his travels, he said, Ah, how I wish you had learned some secret which might enable you to cure a malady which has plunged this court into affliction for some time past. Marzavan replied that if he knew what the illness was, he might possibly be able to suggest a remedy on which the vizier related to him the whole story of Prince Camaralzaman. Upon hearing this, Marzavan rejoiced inwardly, for he felt sure that he had at last discovered the object of the Princess Badura's infatuation. However, he said nothing, 
but begged to be allowed to see the prince. On entering the royal apartment, the first thing which struck him was the prince himself, who lay stretched out on his bed with his eyes closed. The king sat near him, but, without paying any regard to his presence, Marzavan exclaimed, Heavens, what a striking likeness! And, indeed, there was a good deal of resemblance between the features of Camaralzaman and those of the princess of China. These words caused the prince to open his eyes with languid curiosity, and Marzavan seized this moment to pay him his compliments, contriving at the same time to express the condition of the princess of China in terms unintelligible indeed to the sultan and his vizier, but which left the prince in no doubt that his visitor would give him some welcome information. The prince begged his father to allow him the favor of a private interview with Marzavan, and the king was only too pleased to find his son taking an interest in any one or anything. As soon as they were left alone, Marzavan told the prince the story of the princess Badura and her sufferings, adding, I am convinced that you alone can cure her, but before starting on so long a journey you must be well and strong, so do your best to recover as quickly as may be. These words produced a great effect on the prince, who was so much cheered by the hopes held out that he declared he felt able to get up and be dressed. The king was overjoyed at the result of Marzavan's interview and ordered public rejoicings in honor of the prince's recovery. Before long the prince was quite restored to his original state of health, and as soon as he felt himself really strong, he took Marzavan aside and said, Now is the time to perform your promise. I am so impatient to see my beloved princess once more, that I am sure I shall fall ill again if we do not start soon. The one obstacle is my father's tender care of me, for, as you may have noticed, he cannot bear me out of his sight. Prince, replied Marzavan, I have already thought over the matter, and this is what seems to me the best plan. You have not been out of doors since my arrival. Ask the king's permission to go with me for two or three days hunting, and when he has given leave, order two good horses to be held ready for each of us. Leave all the rest to me. Next day the prince seized a favorable opportunity for making his request, and the king gladly granted it on condition that only one night should be spent out for fear of too great fatigue after such a long illness. Next morning Prince Kamaralzaman and Marzavan were off betimes, attended by two grooms leading the two extra horses. They hunted a little by the way, but took care to get as far from the towns as possible. At nightfall they reached an inn, where they supped and slept till midnight. Then Marzavan awoke and roused the prince without disturbing anyone else. He begged the prince to give him the coat he had been wearing, and to put on another which they had brought with them. They mounted their second horses, and Marzavan led one of the groom's horses by the bridle. By daybreak our travelers found themselves where four crossroads met in the middle of the forest. Here Marzavan begged the prince to wait for him, and leading the groom's horse into a dense part of the wood, he cut its throat, dipped the prince's coat in its blood, and having rejoined the prince, threw the coat on the ground where the roads parted. In answer to Kamarazaman's inquiries as to the reason for this, Marzavan replied that the only chance they had of continuing their journey was to divert attention by creating the idea of the prince's death. 
Your father will doubtless be plunged in the deepest grief, he went on, but his joy at your return will be all the greater. The prince and his companion now continued their journey by land and sea, and as they had brought plenty of money to defray their expenses, they met with no needless delays. At length they reached the capital of China, where they spent three days in a suitable lodging to recover from their fatigues. During this time Marzavan had an astrologer's dress prepared for the prince. They then went to the baths, after which the prince put on the astrologer's robe, and was conducted within sight of the king's palace by Marzavan, who left him there and went to consult his mother, the princess's nurse. Meantime the prince, according to Marzavan's instructions, advanced close to the palace gates and there proclaimed aloud, I am an astrologer and I come to restore health to the princess Badura, daughter of the high and mighty king of China, on the conditions laid down by his majesty of marrying her should I succeed, or losing my life if I fail. It was some little time since anyone had presented himself to run the terrible risk involved in attempting to cure the princess, and a crowd soon gathered round the prince. On perceiving his youth, good looks, and distinguished bearing, everyone felt pity for him. "'What are you thinking of, sir?' exclaimed some. "'Why expose yourself to certain death? Are not the heads you see exposed on the town wall sufficient warning?' For mercy's sake, give up this mad idea, and retire whilst you can. But the prince remained firm, and only repeated his cry with greater assurance to the horror of the crowd. He is resolved to die, they cried. May heaven have pity on him. Camaralzaman now called out for the third time, and at last the grand vizier himself came out and fetched him in. The prime minister led the prince to the king, who was much struck by the noble air of this new adventurer, and felt such pity for the fate so evidently in store for him, that he tried to persuade the young man to renounce his project. But Kamaralzaman politely yet firmly persisted in his intentions, and at length the king desired the eunuch who had the guard of the princess's apartments to conduct the astrologer to her presence. The eunuch led the way through long passages, and Kamaralzaman followed rapidly, in haste to reach the object of his desires. At last they came to a large hall, which was the ante-room to the princess's chamber, and here Kamaralzaman said to the eunuch, Now you shall choose, shall I cure the princess in her own presence, or shall I do it from here without seeing her? The eunuch, who had expressed many contemptuous doubts as they came along of the newcomer's powers, was much surprised and said, if you really can cure, it is immaterial when you do it. Your fame will be equally great. Very well, replied the prince. Then, impatient though I am to see the princess, I will effect the cure where I stand, the better to convince you of my power. He accordingly drew out his writing-case and wrote as follows. Adorable princess, the enamored Kamaralzaman has never forgotten the moment when, contemplating your sleeping beauty, he gave you his heart. As he was at that time deprived of the happiness of conversing with you, he ventured to give you his ring as a token of his love, and to take yours in exchange, which he now encloses in this letter. Should you deign to return it to him, he will be the happiest of mortals. If not, he will cheerfully resign himself to death, seeing he does so for the love of you. 
He awaits your reply in your ante-room. Having finished this note, the prince carefully enclosed the ring in it without letting the eunuch see it, and gave him the letter, saying, Take this to your mistress, my friend, and if on reading it and seeing its contents she is not instantly cured, you may call me an impudent impostor. The eunuch at once passed into the princess's room, and handing her the letter, said, Madame, a new astrologer has arrived, who declares that you will be cured as soon as you have read this letter and seen what it contains. The princess took the note and opened it with languid indifference, but no sooner did she see her ring than, barely glancing at the writing, she rose hastily and with one bound reached the doorway and pushed back the hangings. Here she and the prince recognized each other, and in a moment they were locked in each other's arms, where they tenderly embraced, wondering how they came to meet at last after so long a separation. The nurse, who had hastened after her charge, drew them back to the inner room, where the princess restored her ring to Kalmaralzaman. "'Take it back,' she said. "'I would not keep it without returning yours to you, and I am resolved to wear that as long as I live.' Meantime, the eunuch had hastened back to the king. Sire, he cried, all the former doctors and astrologers were mere quacks. This man has cured the princess without even seeing her. He then told all to the king, who, overjoyed, hastened to his daughter's apartments, where, after embracing her, he placed her hand in that of the prince, saying, Happy stranger, I keep my promise, and give you my daughter to wife be you who you may. But if I am not much mistaken, your condition is above what you appear to be. The prince thanked the king in the warmest and most respectful terms, and added, As regards my person, your majesty has rightly guessed that I am not an astrologer. It is but a disguise which I assumed in order to merit your illustrious alliance. I am myself a prince, my name is Camaralzaman, and my father Shazaman, king of the isles of the children of Caledon. He then told his whole story, including the extraordinary manner of his first seeing and loving the princess Badura. When he had finished, the king exclaimed, So remarkable a story must not be lost to posterity. It shall be inscribed in the archives of my kingdom, and published everywhere abroad. The wedding took place next day amid great pomp and rejoicings. Marzavan was not forgotten, but was given a lucrative post at court, with a promise of further advancement. The prince and princess were now entirely happy, and months slipped by unconsciously in the enjoyment of each other's company. One night, however, Prince Kamaralzaman dreamt that he saw his father lying at the point of death, and saying, Alas, my son whom I loved so tenderly, has deserted me and is now causing my death. The prince woke with such a groan as to startle the princess, who asked what was the matter. Ah, cried the prince, at this very moment my father is perhaps no more, and he told his dream. The princess said but little at the time, but next morning she went to the king, and kissing his hand said, I have a favor to ask of your majesty, and I beg you to believe that it is in no way prompted by my husband. It is that you will allow us both to visit my father-in-law, King Shazaman. Sorry though the king felt at the idea of parting with his daughter, 
he felt her request to be so reasonable that he could not refuse it, and made but one condition, which was that she should spend only one year at the court of King Shazaman, suggesting that in future the young couple should visit their respective parents alternately. The princess brought this good news to her husband, who thanked her tenderly for this fresh proof of her affection. All preparations for the journey were now pressed forwards, and when all was ready, the king accompanied the travellers for some days, after which he took an affectionate leave of his daughter, and charging the prince to take every care of her, returned to his capital. The prince and princess journeyed on, and at the end of a month reached a large meadow interspersed with clumps of big trees which cast a most pleasant shade. As the heat was great, Camaralzaman thought it well to encamp in this cool spot. Accordingly the tents were pitched, and the princess entering hers whilst the prince was giving his further orders, removed her girdle, which she placed beside her, and desiring her women to leave her, lay down and was soon asleep. When the camp was all in order, the prince entered the tent, and, seeing the princess asleep, he sat down near her without speaking. His eyes fell on the girdle, which he took up, and whilst inspecting the precious stones set in it, he noticed a little pouch sewn to the girdle and fastened by a loop. He touched it and felt something hard within. Curious as to what this might be, he opened the pouch and found a cornelian engraved with various figures and strange characters. This cornelian must be something very precious, thought he, or my wife would not wear it on her person with so much care. In truth, it was a talisman which the Queen of China had given her daughter, telling her it would ensure her happiness as long as she carried it about her. The better to examine the stone, the prince stepped to the open doorway of the tent. As he stood there holding it in the open palm of his hand, a bird suddenly swooped down, picked the stone up in its beak, and flew away with it. Imagine the prince's dismay at losing a thing by which his wife evidently set such store. The bird having secured its prey flew off some yards and alighted on the ground, holding the talisman in its beak. Prince Camaralzaman advanced, hoping the bird would drop it. But as soon as he approached, the thief fluttered on a little further still. He continued his pursuit till the bird suddenly swallowed the stone and took a longer flight than before. The prince then hoped to kill it with a stone, but the more hotly he pursued, the further flew the bird. In this fashion he was led on by hill and dale through the entire day, and when night came, the tiresome creature roosted on the top of a very high tree where it could rest in safety. The prince in despair at all his useless trouble began to think whether he had better return to the camp. But, thought he, how shall I find my way back? Must I go uphill or down? I should certainly lose my way in the dark, even if my strength held out. Overwhelmed by hunger, thirst, fatigue, and sleep, he ended by spending the night at the foot of the tree. Next morning Camaralzaman woke up before the bird left its perch, and no sooner did it take flight than he followed it again with as little success as the previous day, only stopping to eat some herbs and fruit he found by the way. In this fashion he spent ten days, following the bird all day, and spending the night at the foot of a tree, whilst it roosted in the topmost bough. On the eleventh day the bird and the prince reached a large town, and as soon as they were close to its walls, the bird took a sudden and higher flight, 
and was shortly completely out of sight, whilst Camaralzaman felt in despair at having to give up all hopes of ever recovering the talisman of the Princess Badura. Much cast down, he entered the town, which was built near the sea and had a fine harbour. He walked about the streets for a long time, not knowing where to go, but at length as he walked near the seashore, he found a garden door open and walked in. The gardener, a good old man, who was at work, happened to look up, and, seeing a stranger, whom he recognized by his dress as a Mussulman, he told him to come in at once and to shut the door. Camaralzaman did as he was bid, and inquired why this precaution was taken. Because, said the gardener, I see that you are a stranger and a Mussulman, and this town is almost entirely inhabited by idolaters who hate and persecute all of our faith. It seems almost a miracle that has led you to this house, and I am indeed glad that you have found a place of safety. Camaralzaman warmly thanked the kind old man for offering him shelter, and was about to say more, but the gardener interrupted him with, Leave compliments alone, you are weary and must be hungry. Come in, eat and rest. So saying, he led the prince into his cottage, and after satisfying his hunger, begged to learn the cause of his arrival. Kamaralzaman told him all without disguise, and ended by inquiring the shortest way to his father's capital. For, added he, if I had tried to rejoin the princess, how should I find her after eleven days' separation? Perhaps, indeed, she may be no longer alive. At this terrible thought he burst into tears. The gardener informed Kamaralzaman that they were quite a year's land journey to any Mahomedan country, but that there was a much shorter route by sea to the Ebony Island, from whence the Isles of the Children of Caledon could be easily reached, and that a ship sailed once a year for the Ebony Island, by which he might get so far as his very home. "'If only you had arrived a few days sooner,' he said, "'you might have embarked at once. As it is, you must now wait till next year, but if you care to stay with me, I offer you my house, such as it is, with all my heart.' Prince Camaralzaman thought himself lucky to find some place of refuge, and gladly accepted the gardener's offer. He spent his days working in the garden, and his nights thinking of and sighing for his beloved wife. End of chapter 27